1: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. Daniel Pick is a psychoanalyst and historian of science at Birkbeck. Between 2014 and 21, he led an interdisciplinary research project at that university called Hidden Persuaders, exploring the myths and controversies surrounding the concept of brainwashing in the Cold War. His book, Brainwashed, A New History of Thought Control, is a guide to the frightening place where the science of the mind and the politics of paranoia come together. I sat down with him to find out more. Daniel, your new book is a history of the concept of brainwashing and of mind control, Both of these are somewhat murky concepts that mean different things to different people. And we'll explore a variety of those meanings over the course of this interview. But to start with, will you tell us about the origins of the word brainwashing and how it first entered the zeitgeist?
0: Sure. I mean, at one level, ideas about possession and fascination and suggestion and manipulation are kind of as old as... As culture, really, I mean, or, you, know, you could go back to the Greeks or to Shakespeare, wherever you like, in the very broadest sense. But brainwashing as such is, is a much more modern concept. And it's bound up with the history of the human sciences and the psychological professions. And the story really starts after the Second World War, when the term itself is coined five years after the end of the war. And it's meant to be a translation of a Chinese term for washing the mind. And there's a debate about who actually literally coins the term, but it comes up in the Guardian newspaper in in the UK and it comes up in the Miami News in the US in 1950. And the person who certainly popularises it at that point is Edward Hunter, a journalist who has intelligence links in the US who writes an article warning about brainwashing, focusing especially on the dangers of Chinese brainwashing. And he's thinking about Mao and the People's Republic of China. So that's the starting point, formally speaking, of the debate about brainwashing.
1: Will you take us back to the People's Republic and the time of the Korean War and set the scene for us? How do these brainwashing fears emerge from that Cold War context?
0: Sure. Well, again, the the story of of this period, of this first major military conflict of the post-Second World War period, of the Cold War, is backshadowed by the Red Scare that there's already been after the First World War and, you know, worries about communism and psychology, but also about the mass psychology of fascism, about which there's a very large interwar literature and wartime literature. Um, but, um, but, But with the Korean War, there's a kind of whole new chapter in this story about mind manipulation. And this really turns on the fate of prisoners and the psychology of prisoners, in the Korean War. So there are many POWs, thousands on both sides. And there are a number of captured US airmen who start to make strange confessions, for instance, to germ warfare experiments, and nobody can quite figure out how they've been induced to make what the, from the American point of view is claimed to be false confessions, because the, the germ warfare story is denied. In Washington, but the the story really explodes in 1953 at the end of the war when there's a large scale prisoner swap operation orchestrated by the UN to kind of repatriate POWs, and they're allowed to choose their destination, which is an unusual thing. But the Americans particularly don't want prisoners uh, of war on their side to be forced back, sort of the hammer and sickle, as it were. They want POWs to be able to choose, and many on that side do indeed choose not to go back to North Korea or China and choose other destinations, uh, Taiwan included. But there are a number of American POWs, they end up as 21, there are a couple more who change their minds, but 21 Americans and one British soldier who decide to go and live in China when they have the choice about repatriation. They say, no, they don't want to go back. Uh, There's a system where they're held for 90 days before that decision is implemented, a sort of decompression period, as it were, where they're not meant to instantly have to decide. But those 21 Americans stick to the plan, these GIs, and they go to China. And that leads to a really intense debate in America and, and elsewhere about how it would be possible for such soldiers freely to choose to live in Mao's China The argument becomes about manipulation and and brainwashing and whether really some clandestine secret measures have been taken to to turn their minds and quite what this set of techniques would be that could induce people to do something from the American point of view so bizarre as as to elect to go and live under communism. So the 21 GIs becomes a kind of story that then also generates a lot of heat in, in both, you know, policy discussion, you know, on the airwaves, radio, uh, movies, and, you know, culminating in classic movies of brainwashing like The Manchurian Candidate a bit later on at the end, the, the novel and then the, um, the film. But, but I think that's, that's sort of really the eye of the storm.
1: At the time, what did the US authorities think was going on with those soldiers? What were the key elements of this new concept of brainwashing?
0: Well, it's very, when you read the literature, you know, starting with Edward Hunter, who then writes books about this and and others who write books with, uh, you know, new terms like menticide, the, the systematic destruction of the mind, there are a variety of theories, you know, some of them are to do with, I mean, they're all a bit vague, I have to say, and that's one of the problems is kind of trying to pin down exactly what's happened and whether resistance is possible in extremists. If you isolate people in captivity, terrorise them, deplete them physically. So, you know, uh, d- depriving people of, um, of contact, keeping people in silence, keeping people in stress positions, the threat of torture or actual physical torture. But th- th- there are a variety of debates about the physical and the m- mental duress and pressure And also ideas that come more from psychoanalytic thought rather than from the behavioural sciences about the inner world and our sort of hold on sanity and to what extent you can in a way decimate somebody's internal world, their hold on what psychoanalysts might call a good object, like something inside you that a caring, containing function and really how, how you could destroy the mind. I mean, Hunter's idea is first you have to break the person, or he says there's a crack-up stage in interrogation where people fall to pieces. So something about this kind of, in a way, attack on all of our modes of security, faith in ourselves, you know, beliefs, and also the the kind of um, measures that might lead people to feel terrible forms of guilt and shame. So keeping people in in squalid conditions where there are no toilet facilities, so the sort of sense of something really um, almost sort of regressing people to sort of an infantile state. So there's a lot of thought about regression, about hypnosis, about, you know, as well as isolation um, and the terrors of isolation, there are thoughts about the power of groups to shame or to cajole or infuse people for new causes. So the literature of the 50s about brainwashing explores really all of these ideas, as well as questions about uh, new drugs Uh, drug treatments, uh, and so on. And of course, in parallel with these debates about what the Chinese and the Russians might be doing sort of behind the iron and bamboo curtains, there's also a lot of experiment going on under the aegis of Western intelligence, which is to some degree licensed by the furore over communist brainwashing. So again, there's a backstory to this, which is experiments during the Second World War with drugs and other measures to interrogate enemy POWs that are led by the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner of the CIA. So experimental measures to to sort of glean information from from POWs in the Second World War. But post uh, Second World War, in the late 40s, early 50s, the experiment takes off again. And 1953 is also the moment, formally speaking, when a secret CIA, by now we have the CIA after the, as it were, the OSS folds and the CIA is created. And under their uh, auspices, the, um, a project that later comes to be well known called MKUltra is formed, uh, which mobilises expertise in the human sciences, in psychiatry, uh, psychology, uh, and so on, to explore interrogation and the personality, really, to try to understand what you can do to get past people's defences in interrogation, so MK Ultra is what is, is this in a way umbrella for a, a range of experiments that are conducted directly or indirectly with funding to you know various psychiatrists, researchers, psychologists uh, to explore these phenomena. Both and and in a way, the argument is both that that Western defense forces, special forces, you know agents and so on, troops need to be trained to withstand such techniques, but also that these could be used by Western intelligence or or armies in such measures. And we came to know much more about this later on with various freedom of information requests and and key books, sort of in the last couple of decades of the 20th century. And then, of course, after 9-11, when the notorious so-called enhanced interrogation programmes that were uh, licensed by the Bush administration became well publicised and they were, in a way, the legacy of, of, quite, of this kind of work that, that spanned 50 years. With historical hindsight,
1: and having looked at the evidence some almost 70 years on, do you think the American POWs who chose to resettle behind the bamboo curtain were coerced using the mechanics that you've outlined, or was something else going on?
0: It's a really complex question because this whole debate is, you know, became the stuff of melodrama, of sensationalism, of a of a, a near hysterical anti-communist fear that then comes to be satirized in, in, as well as amplified in movies. Comes to be satirized in a way in, in movies like *The Manchurian Candidate*, about this kind of anti-communist McCarthyite. Um, you know kind of atmosphere so it's it's hard to disentangle because in a way the the term becomes so so dramatized or melodramatized that doesn't mean there's not something serious at stake in the issue you know and one of the, the the really um outstanding writers early on who explores this and who tries to steer a path between You know, these two extremes of sort of, as it were, the hysterical version or, the you know, as it were, the highly politicised McCarthyite version and the kind of view that this is all just froth and overblown and there's nothing to see here is Robert J. Lifton. Who was a psychiatrist at the end of the uh, Korean War and came back with some of the POWs on a troop ship and anyway wrote a famous book on this in 1961, trying to say there's something serious going on here about manipulation and what he calls thought reform, but on the other hand, we need to differentiate each case is different. We can't have a just a general assumption. And actually, if you look at the stories of these 21 men who 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 were kind of used, they were all brainwashed, sort of end of story, it's much more complex. And uh, each of them had different reasons, a complex variety of reasons for their choices. Some of them changed their minds. Uh, we talked on my Hidden Persuaders project that, that I, I, I ran that was kind of, in a way, the background to my book. We talked to one of the men, one of those 21 men who was still alive, f- a feisty uh, man called David Hawkins, who by then in old age, back in, long, long back in the US, living in California at that stage, He'd been a very young 17-year-old recruit to the U.S. Army in 1950, and he was captured and he chose. He was one of these 21. He tells a much more complex story of why he went, about the kind of awful childhood he'd had in, in the U.S., about the experience of, of of being in the Army, of captivity, of the sort of, in a way, horror of that, and felt that he, he chose because he wanted uh, adventure, he was interested in in a new experience, he was also piqued that American officials assumed at the end of, you know, when he was given a choice that, of course, he'd go back to US. So he also sort of says in a way, it was almost not exactly capricious, but he wasn't going to be pushed around. So and he, he was interviewed, he then changed his mind four years after, you know, the choice to go to China, went back to the US and was sort of interviewed on television. And he's asked where you brainwashed. And he says, he says, well, you wouldn't know, which is a bit mysterious. So he sort of a bit plays with the interviewer. But he didn't feel at the time, I think, he didn't really know about brainwashing uh, as a concept, he says, until he got back to the US. He knew little about it. But then he encounters this idea, you know, were you brainwashed or were you a traitor? Were you a turncoat? Were you morally responsible for the choice? So he kind of in a, a, a peculiar position that one or other label is being stuck on him. And the same went for other, you know, uh, GIs. There was an African-American soldier who later wrote a memoir about this, uh, Clarence Adams, another one of the 21. There were three African-American soldiers in the group and he wrote a memoir which was posthumously published called an American dream uh, and he sort of says no he why would he he was much more exercised about racism in the US and what it had been like to grow up in the south of the US and the daily experience of racism and being dehumanized and wanting to be he says to be treated as a human being and was impressed by the ideas he heard in the camp and so on, so he takes a different view for him. it was much more about race, in the case of Hawkins, who, who was a, a white soldier, a poor boy from Oklahoma, uh, who had these you know, complex variety of reasons for going, he later on he doesn 't embrace the term brainwashed, but he had, there were other terms that he does seem more sympathetic to later on PTSD being one of them, that he says maybe it was that there 's another term that kind of comes in much more in the '70s, which is Stockholm syndrome that somebody suggests to him. So there are other kind of ideas that he, he sort of plays with to think, was he traumatised? Was he manipulated one way or the other? So there's that, you know, but I think, each, I think the point Lifton makes in his book is you have to take these stories one by one and to take seriously that there are measures that captors can use to isolate, to shame, to confuse, to intimidate, to seduce people in in all these ways. And Lifton, he tries to sort of schematize this, like it helps if you have a closed milieu, people can't get in and out, you close off access to other information, you have the power of life or death, you have sort of purification rituals, you have uh, some sort of, you load the language to privilege certain ideas over others. And he has in a way these sort of criteria that he tries to schematize that that certainly can help to, to break and to remake people. But I don't think we can just lump the whole story. It's not like a production line where people are just, like in a sausage factory, you come out the other end brainwashed or not. I think it's some combination where there's some agency, but also, obviously, a kind of assault on the mind going on, potentially.
1: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II, and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle, and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House, and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. As the Cold War progressed, the intellectual class in America came to be frightened of a much softer version of this concept of brainwashing, which we call groupthink, can you tell us a bit about how belief in groupthink took hold?
0: Yes, I mean, I was in the book, I was interested in the range, really, of ideas that emerged post war about the mind. And really, I mean, it, it, just to sort of turn the whole thing around, I think one of the things that's so interesting about this vocabulary that crystallizes in the 50s is that it was a foil for thinking about thinking. What is it to think f- for yourself? And I think part of the reason we're drawn to that vocabulary is because it makes you think about your own thinking, even if you're not a prisoner or, you know, a POW or a prisoner of conscience uh, under the assault of an enemy power. But do we think, can we think freely? What is, what is that? And, and this term groupthink is, is another coinage of the post-war period. So it comes up in 1952 in a business article in the US William White, who's a journalist uh, on the East Coast, who says something curious might be happening in the West and in under the influence of capitalism and particularly in big corporations, which is a kind of curious synchronisation and harmonisation of thinking. So it's not brainwashing, but it's a kind of convergence of attitudes that happens in more subtle ways. So the thing that, in a way, I was intrigued by is this vocabulary that's really about the spectrum between the most sort of gross and intrusive and extreme versions of conversion, where someone comes out with a diametrically opposed view or cannot think or is in a cult, you know, or in in the throes of, of some other sort of master discourse and they just spout it like a parrot, as it were, at worst. And something more subtle, where you think you're thinking, uh, and you seem to be living your life, you know, in a in a, in a seemingly free way in the so-called free world, and yet you're behaving like everyone else, or so you're living in what is in a popular song of of 1963. It's called you know Little Boxes. There's a, there's a hit song in '63 about groupthink. Sort of ten years after this concept emerges where it's about people going to university and then becoming business executives and the song lyrics have you know drinking martinis and playing golf and having families and a sort of american ideal of, of the good life where many people think well what's not to like about this william white who's sort of you know is has been a business executive himself he's not equating this with totalitarianism he's not sort of in a way you know just trying to reduce everything to the same thing but he's saying Something about corporate life leads to this harmonisation. And one of his arguments is ultimately this endangers capitalism and corporate profit. Because if everybody is just thinking alike and doing kind of what they're told without realising it and singing from the same hymn sheet and working for corporations for life, you lose the kind of innovative, edgy, sparky, challenging, you know, dynamic that he thinks turbocharges capitalism. So, he, so this kind of argument is really being advanced about, you know, in the in relation again to the Cold War, like brainwashing, but with an argument that something has got to be done to encourage originality of thought within the business world, within the university world. So you don't just have students passively listening to lecturers in boring traditional teaching that people uh, are encouraged to think across, out, you know, another phrase outside the box, which is a later phrase for the same thing, but sort of somehow to break the mould create think tanks, you know, so uh, the idea of not just kind of going along in the standard rote way. So he then writes an influential popular book in 1956 called The Organisation Man, which sort of elaborates on this kind of mode of people who all kind of commute on the train and wear a suit and have the same ideals, and go on the same kind of holidays. You know, again, to sort of almost like a sociology of conformism. And that's really, there are a whole range of books in the 50s that seem to be quite kind of concerned. Uh, you know, some of them are more obviously left-wing and radical, like Herbert Marcuse's One-Dimensional Man. Some of them are about, the, there's, the, there's a book in 1950 called The Lonely Crowd, again, that sort of explores this idea of a sort of mu- an increasingly superficial, Outward form of conformity, where we rely on valorization and reassurance from others, and there's not a deep inward, as it were, self, but more this kind of adaptation. Uh, so it's like a sort of um, thread of th- of thought that seems to be anxious about the very things that other Western commentators are celebrating, which are about middle class values, about prosperity, about business, uh, you know, expansion, and so on. So. Later on, you get, you know, um, other kinds of critiques. Small is beautiful. You know, it's, it's bigness that's the problem. We need to break things up. Or as there's another term is start-ups later on that come to be valorized rather than just working for the corporation. But I think that's the groupthink is, is really about holding a mirror up to Western life. And it's the way this debate, in a way, boomerangs back on the West. It primarily it starts as a more Orwellian-style story about the East about you know communism, about totalitarianism, and a tot- what Lifton calls totalism, where the mind is completely, in you know, where unified, singularized, can't bear contradiction, dissent inside of itself, which is congruent with totalitarianism, a sort of, you know, um, almost like a police state within the mind. But increasingly, the '50s generates books about hidden persuaders, lonely crowds, groupthink, etc.
1: Do you think in the fake news post-truth era that we have a new kind of brainwashing or mind control at work, one that contradicts the earlier conformist models that we've just discussed?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's famously satirised in the series Mad Men, you know, at the very end where Don Draper realises, you know, that there's potential in the counterculture in this idea of breaking loose, of dropping out, of being different, even the slogan, think different, that that capitalism is is enormously protean. You know, Karl Marx said this in the 19th century, the capacity to reinvent and of the advertising industry to reinvent itself around ideals of individuality rather than keeping up with the Joneses. The idea of being different or valuing yourself as non-conformist can itself be appropriated in new forms of branding and advertising and in a way that's you know where that drama ends up and it kind of it's linked to the coca-cola famous advert of that moment um, which is a sort of new globalist cosmopolitan diverse kind of constituency who are all sort of you know in in the advert uh, they're all singing from a hillside but they're all different individuals and so on so of course those techniques in advertising, but also in the, in the internet world, the idea of everything more bespoke and tailored to you, supposedly as an individual, but obviously also um, in a way orchestrated. And that's different from the idea of playing on, in a way, the anxiety uh, that you must be the same. So I, I think that you could see it as a shift in strategy, but you could also see in a way, even in 50s and 60s advertising, more as um, a kind of pendulum maybe between the idea of being better or superior, and being the same, being played on in you're getting, getting one up on the neighbour, as opposed to keeping up or being the, the same, you know, the, the group think that's va- valorized of, of think like the others, be American, be patriotic, we're all one, we're one people. So, um, you know, but of course, the internet, I mean, in a way, if we're thinking about advertising culture, and its contribution to this debate, you know, or, or the critique of, of advertising culture Vance Packard's 1950s book, The Hidden Persuaders, is important in the story. So we've got Groupthink in '52, Brainwash in 1950, The Hidden Persuaders in 1957. And he, in this popular book, sets out many of the anxieties we still might have about subliminal uh, advertising, about un- the influence of, the, of Madison Avenue on our unconscious minds, on our dreams, on our desires, our anxieties, and the techniques that were developed Post war, in the inside the industry, uh, by, by psychologists like um, Dichter, who was who set up a, a whole agency, an institute of so called motivational research to study, uh, you know, uh, to use psychology to sort of study what actually drives people to buy things. So, so a lot of that is already in play, either being celebrated like this is so sophisticated and marvelous, or being warned against. Emerges in the fifties and then. Has a new turn, obviously a much different turn in the in the new millennium around the internet, digital surveillance, um, you know, or, or the attention economy uh, uh, as well.
1: How do we distinguish between brainwashing and thought control and techniques of persuasion that you would consider to be legitimate?
0: It's a good question, isn't it? I mean, I, I think that there is a difference. I think you know, it, it is better to actually differentiate education. Uh, for you know and and influence and persuasion in a more ordinary sense from from this sort of total assault that we're talking about where the mind is broken uh, people are you know are traumatized or broken or manipulated in these extreme ways but I think that the extreme cases also as I'm saying point us towards the the ambiguity of where do these more subtle forms of nudge you know, we have a whole elaborate vocabulary, don't we? There are terms now like nudge. It might even be seen as benign to help us to behave better, to wear seatbelts, to take vaccines, to, to, to sort of in a way to encourage us to, to do sensible things, but sort of using behavioural psychology. And where we may be quite, in a way, or semi-aware that we are being required to do it. And, you know, and yet there is a question nonetheless about the degree to which we may, we may be actually unaware of how powerful these techniques of advertising uh, or of indeed surveillance are. So I don't think I can sort of, as it were, answer with a formulation like here's, here's the clear dividing line. But I think it's something we need to think about, which is about the freedom to think. So are we offered in a way, in a more reasoned and thoughtful way, ways to think about Ourselves and choices, and to be well informed, to have news, to have information, to realize there's a diversity of, of options. I mean, that we need, there isn't one solution to the climate crisis exactly. There's, there are serious choices to make, but we need to have facts, not, as it were, to be completely in the sway of fake news and so on. So we need evidence. That may still lead people to slightly different conclusions about their personal ethical behavior rather than we're all going to be then identically. Operating, But I think there's a difference between education, information and th- these kinds of techniques, in, whether, it, whether it's under totalitarianism or in the, the relatively free world, of what is the basis on which we make political and, and ethical choices in our lives, or, you know, and who, who's, who's manipulating us? And to what degree are people also, as it were, um, inclined to go along with false solutions, with messianic solutions, with hysterical promises, with denial of reality. And Freud, you know, there's a lot of rich discussion of these problems in Freud and the psychoanalytic tradition, which is not to think people are are passive sponges. It's all coming from outside. We're just sort of the stooges of the system, but nor to sort of imagine we're fully conscious, certainly that we're, we're rational Creatures And to think about the interplay of passion and reason, of drives, of the different agencies within our own minds that can then operate in collusion with parties outside. You know, and you see it in extremes, in folie à deux, as it's called, where you can have sort of mad things going on in a couple of murderous things, people manipulating others in groups. But, you know, it's, a, it's an intra-psychical problem as well as an interpersonal social problem because if you're thinking whether it's advertising or any of these other things the question one has to ask is how does that affect the mind there are situations in which one may have no agency at all as i say in extreme who knows how you or i would behave if we are held in solitary confinement for weeks and months on end expecting to be executed if we're tortured if we hear other people being tortured or or if we're asked at the, at the price of our own survival to commit hideous, atrocious acts. In other words, things that that absolutely devastate our internal systems. Who knows where we would end up? I don't think one can can legislate in those extremes. What we can think about, I think, are more ordinary everyday things, about the degree to which we allow ourselves, as it were, to think or to resist or to make choices or to sort of, in a way, go along with something, to be seduced in this sort of, as it were, complex traffic between a system and our own minds.
1: Are we, by discussing your book together on this podcast in a way that we both hope will encourage listeners to buy and read the book, engaged in a mild form of brainwashing ourselves?
0: I mean, you know, I I had um, a quip in it, which didn't make it to the final version of the book, but perhaps it's too obvious. But beware of books about brainwashing that might be in the business of brainwashing you or more subtly manipulating you, and I suppose in my book, you know, I am making a plea for, in a way, as I would see it, a recognition of certain realities in, the, you know, in relation to the contemporary crisis. Like, the, you know, take the heat waves that are now hitting Europe. Is you know, and it's, it's so striking even on the news coverage how this often is presented with no reference to climate change, as though it's just a freak event of the weather and how, you know, doubt has been manipulated, you know, because there's reasonable doubt that people should have in the authority of science and elites and, you know, so-called specialists and so on. But this has also been manipulated to lead us to, in a way, reassuringly to not address what is now blindingly obvious and has been endorsed by most of the reputable scientists who study such matters. So the disjoining of our thinking from, reality is is a real problem, and I am making a plea for that now somebody as it were who's a, a climate change denier might say well i 'm manipulating the readers to this is a false reality and wanting to pour doubt on all of the as it were the science the u n warnings etc etc so there's always going to be a debate isn't there about authority and discourse you know what Foucault calls power and knowledge of whose of, of whose word of, of in a way questions of trust and does one need to doubt everything, you know, and how, how fears uh, can be manipulated into conspiracy theory and the rest. But I think what I try to do in the book, by and large, is to historicize, you know, partly it is, it is an intervention in, the, in contemporary culture and politics, admittedly, but it's also really an attempt to give people some tools which I think have not been sufficiently recognised from this very rich literature of the post-war period that really thought hard about these Problems. And it certainly wasn't all singing from the same hymn sheet. It wasn't all a particular politics, but there were a whole range of, of thinkers who, who were very concerned, you know, from George Orwell to Hannah Arendt to the Polish Nobel Prize winning poet Milosz, who wrote The Captive Mind, which is a great book in 1953 that I discuss, uh, you know, Packard and many others to sort of think about thinking and, you know, to sort of in a way urge people to, to really Be vigilant in in, in thinking about it, both to, as it were, ask questions about themselves, but also about politics and the framework and what is it we need to make informed decision making. And of course, there are new experiments now in e-democracy and participatory forms of budgeting and so on that aren't just about voting every few years, but trying to actually give people a more solid basis for making decisions without presupposing what they should Decide. So, of course, one should read everything with some caution and make your, ideally, make, you know, draw one's own conclusions and see what evidence arguments are based on. And of course, that's an argument in a way that's as old as philosophy about rhetoric and the sinewy power of, you know, in rhetoric to, to, to manipulate and play upon uh, emotion rather than reason.
1: Well, I hope we have persuaded listeners both to buy the book and to approach its contents with an open mind. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
0: Thank you very much for inviting me to join you.
1: This week's podcast starred Daniel Pick and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. The editor is John Doughty, and the series is made by me and Dana Outcult. Daniel's book, Brainwashed, is out now and there is a whole lot more to explore on the Birkbeck Hidden Persuaders website, which I've linked to in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope I can persuade you in a non-manipulative and non-pernicious way to write us a review and share it with your friends. Until next time, thanks for listening.